You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Our teaching text, which again is Ephesians 6, starting in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good morning. You know, um, actually, fun fact, I am Queens-raised, Jamaica Queens to be exact. Um, funnily enough, I was actually born in Brooklyn, though. So there is a, my parents were born and raised in Brooklyn. They were the first-generation Puerto Rican family, kind of moved here in the 60s. And so, yeah, I have a little bit of Brooklyn in me, and hopefully it will come out today with you all. So real quick, before we dive into the scriptures, you know, the scriptures tell us the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and what the psalmist is trying to get there is that every bit of creation is imbued with the presence and glory of God. And that means that the surroundings in our lives can witness to the reality of what God is doing in the world. And I offer this to you, not as my main text, this one's for free, but I offer this to you as a church. You know, it's very inspiring to see in the middle of technically a hurricane that you guys have gathered here. And as we were worshiping and praying in such an incredible time led by your team, as God was moving and speaking to us, I, I, I offer you this image that the church has always been the eye of the hurricane in a suffering world. And for you, what you're doing symbolically here today by your gathering is participating in the reality of what the church has always been called to do. That when the world is in frantic chaos, when the world is suffering, when the world doesn't know where to turn or where to look, the church has always been a beacon. It has always been a lamppost. It has always been a safe house. And so that means the people of God, you, have also been called to be that. So I offer you this this word from the Lord that you would continue as a community and as individuals to be that. This I, in what has certainly been a hurricane these past few years, Now, with that said, let's get ready for the word of the Lord. I have this tradition of reading this prayer by St. John Chrysostom, um, which kind of gets our hearts ready to receive. You know, there's a parable of the good soil, and there's this kind of dynamic between our, our readiness to receive the word and the effectiveness of the word. So allow this prayer to prepare our hearts to hear the word today. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, open the eyes of our hearts that we may hear your word and understand and do your will, for we are pilgrims upon the earth. Hide not your commandments from us, but open our eyes that we may perceive the wonders of your law. 
Speak unto us the hidden and secret things of your wisdom. On you do we set our hope that you shall enlighten our minds and understanding with the light of your knowledge, not only to cherish those things which are written, but to do them. That in reading the lives and sayings of the saints, we may not sin, but that such may serve for our restoration, our enlightenment, and sanctification, for the salvation of our souls and the inheritance of life everlasting. For you are the enlightenment of those who lie in darkness, and from you comes every good deed and every gift. Amen. So you are in the middle of a series about the armor of God. And as I was preparing for this, I, I, I was just getting ready and you, I was assigned the, the sword of the spirit. And I've been in and out of church a long time. I, I've been in ministry a, a little bit. And so I've heard a lot of messages about the sword of the spirit. And so I was thinking, Ryan, what can this text say to me that I have not heard yet? And I think that's an important way to approach scripture. There's a thing we do, the longer you're a Christian, the more rote your scripture reading becomes and the more dead it becomes because you think you know what the author's already going to say. And so I had to approach this scripture with fresh eyes. And as I began reading, I, I realized something that I think will be helpful for us today in our own spiritual battles. You know, depending on the tradition you grew up in, spiritual warfare might seem like a creepy, esoteric topic or it might be something you're very familiar with. But either way, according to Paul, it is a reality we all participate in. It is something we all have to undergo. It is something we all have to do. There is no one safe as the great and wise poet, um, the group of poets, Mob Deep, once said, there's a war going on outside no man is safe from. And I would like to make that argument that no Christian is Safe. No Christian has, has, the, has the bench. No Christian is, can, can wait to check in at a later date. No, everyone is involved in this very real struggle with principalities and powers and spiritual darkness. But what does this mean for us, and how do we understand this? Well, I think Paul's actually doing something pretty brilliant. See, Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians with this sort of cosmic context. Paul kind of outlines the, the cosmic victory of Christ and what Christ has done for the entire cosmos. And then as he begins to talk, he begins to talk about these principalities and powers that are at work in the world. And while he doesn't go into great detail on what these powers are and what they look like, he does let us know what they do in the world. They alienate humanity from God by encouraging them to disobey. And they separate people from each other through the alienating sins of greed, falsehood, and anger. And so what Paul wants the Ephesians to understand is that there is a war going on outside. There, there is a battle happening. There is, there is something going on and that the Ephesians are right at the center of it. That their normal, mundane, everyday lives are a part of this grand cosmic conflict in which God's kingdom is advancing in victory. That's an important note. This is not some dualism. This is not there's good and they're evil and they're equally powerful. No, no. God's kingdom is already victorious to what has occurred in Jesus Christ and it's advancing and it's taking ground and what the enemy is doing is simply fighting a battle of retreat and attrition, trying to take as many with him as he heads to his own demise. And so, Paul wants the Ephesians to know that this cosmic conflict is happening, that the life of the church, the life of the people of God, everything that happens in this world takes place in this context. 
But he also doesn't want the Ephesians to think that the battle is out there, that the battle is beyond the four walls, that the battle is some intellectual debate in the academy, or that the battle is something taking place on the news feeds, that the battle is somewhere out there, a battle of ideas and a battle of wits. No, 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 he wants to say, no, no, this is not just a battle that's happening out there, but it's actually a battle happening in here. If you read Paul's letter to the Ephesians in full, and I encourage you, it probably should take you 15 minutes to do it. You see Paul in chapters one to three, he moves from the cosmic. He has this cosmic perspective of Christ's victory, what it's done, what it's accomplished. Then in chapters four, verses one to 16, all of a sudden he starts to talk about the life of the church. And then he ends his letter with reflections on the individual, individual piety, morality, ethics, the way of Jesus, and the relational dynamics between people. And as if Paul is trying to say this, that the battlefield of this cosmic conflict is not out there in some ethereal realm which we cannot discern, but the cosmic conflict between God's kingdom and the dark spiritual powers actually takes place right here, in the inner life, in our relational dynamics in how we approach and treat one another, in how we live our lives. In other words, the war is not going on out there, but it's going on in here. It's in the interior life where we're called to stand against the wiles of the devil. It's in the interior life we wrestle against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. It's here. If you're looking for the great spiritual battle God has called you to partake in, look no further, it's the person in the mirror. And this shouldn't be shocked to us because Paul has language for this. He, he talks about the flesh and the spirit. The, there's a dual reality to us in which even those who have been made new and sanctified and redeemed by the power of the spirit through Christ's redemptive work, there is still conflict. There is still the old man, the flesh. There's this part of us that still wages war against the spirit. That's why Jesus tells Peter the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And I think all of us can relate to this dynamic. You know what I'm talking about. You know the wrestling. You know the moment you did the thing you swore you didn't want to do and you still did it anyways. And you know the moment where you're supposed to do that thing. You're supposed to follow the way of Jesus in that moment and you let the moment pass you by. Why? Because there's a war going on right here in the inner life. And the question we have to ask today is if the war is here, if the cosmic conflict is within, then what role does the word of God play in that context? And to do that, we have to figure out what, what is Paul saying by the word of God? You know, most of us, when we hear the title, the word of God, we, we, we jump to this, we jump to the Bible. And so when we think Paul is reading this letter or reading it, we kind of reading ourselves into it, and we think, okay, so Paul is talking about the scriptures. But well, I think there's some legitimacy to that. I think, I think Paul is actually doing something a bit different. I think Paul's talking about a specific word of God. And we actually know this because it seems Paul is riffing on some parts of Isaiah and then also the second temple Jewish work by the name of the wisdom of Solomon. Matter of fact, I'll read you that passage from the second temple work. The second temple period is a period in which after the second temple was built where the Jews are doing theology, that kind of gap between Christ's arrival and announcement and the last, last we kind of hear of the Bible in the book of Malachi. And this is, this is the kind of theology that's developing in that messy middle where God had stopped speaking to his people. 
But in the wisdom of Solomon, it says this. And this is how we know Paul, who was a good, observant Pharisee before he has a convert. He, he would have been familiar with this text. It says this, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. The Lord will take his zeal as his whole armor and will arm all creation to repel his enemies. He will put on righteousness as a breastplate and wear impartial justice as a helmet. He will take holiness as an invincible shield and sharpen stern wrath for a sword. Okay, so we have, this, we have the sword analogy here. And creation will join him to fight against his frenzied foes. And notice the armor of God was not a Pauline invention. Paul didn't invent the armor of God. He's working with actually an image he already had in his mind that, that God himself was a warrior God, that he was ready to suit up for battle, to go to war against the dark spiritual powers. And actually, in the Jewish imagination, in the Old Testament prophets, God is often depicted as a warrior coming to save his people. And again, we have the image of the sword. And in the wisdom of Solomon, it's his stern wrath. Here's what it says in Isaiah. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. Another passage in Isaiah 59. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in fury as in a mantle. So this is the imagery Paul is working with. This is the backdrop to Paul's imagination. And when we see in these kind of images that the sword is not a collection of scriptures, it's a word from God's mouth. It's a word of judgment. It's a word of vengeance. It's the word God will speak at the last day when evil has to be held to account for. It's why we believe God is a God of love and justice because God was not just, he would not be loving. And so we believe God will hold evil to account. That God will hold wickedness to account one day. That the wickedness that has gone unchecked and, and seemingly unmatched in this present day will eventually be dealt with. And so that's the word. It's the word of God's justice coming from his mouth. And for Paul, this word is the announcement of God's rule and reign. For Paul, this message is the gospel. That the word of God, that is the sword of the spirit, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is the very proclamation of the gospel. That's the word Paul is talking about. We see it in the context of Ephesians. That's the word, that's the, word the Ephesians heard. They heard the proclamation that Jesus indeed rules and reigns, that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is in power and that he will return to judge the living and the dead. This is the proclamation of the gospel. This is the sword of the Spirit. And while I think it's legitimate to talk about the sword of the Spirit in terms of talking about the scriptures, I think if we want to honor Paul's context, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the proclaimed reality of God's rule and reign. So, if the cosmic conflict takes place in here, and the sword of the Spirit is the proclaimed reality of God's rule and reign, what does it mean to wield that sword in the battle of the inner life? And I think for here, from here we have to turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, which tradition tells us Paul wrote, though that's a debated fact, is also working with the same image, the sword of the Spirit being the word of God. And it's here we get a bit more. We get a bit more unearthed on what it means for God's word to work and activate and be impactful 
in the battle of the inner life. And it says this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And before him, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one whom we must render an account. So, cosmic conflict taking place in here. The sword of the spirit is the proclaimed word of God, which is by the same context we have in Hebrews. It's, it's the message they heard as well, the message they inherited from the apostles and prophets, the gospel, the reality of God's rule and reign in Jesus. What does that mean when we take up that sword in the battle of the interior life? See, the great paradox of the sword of the spirit is oftentimes we think about it, we think about the fight out there. We think we are fighting against things coming at us, but what happens if the sword of the spirit is something you wielded against yourself? What would happen if rather than confronting the perceived enemy outside the four walls of the church, you had to bear the sword against the person you see in the mirror? What happens when the sword that's supposed to strike out against the enemy has to also strike out at the flesh within? And here, Hebrews unpacks what that looks like. Number one, it exposes us that there's something about the declaration of God's rule and reign that lays us bare. That when we hear the pronouncement that Jesus is Lord, there's something about that strike that so cuts to the depths of us. We are exposed and laid bare, and guess what? Our motives are exposed and laid bare. See, in this cosmic conflict, you know, you can either serve one or serve the other. You know, no man can serve two masters. And so when we hear the word of God proclaimed, when it comes to bear on our lives, we have to grapple with the reality of whom do we really serve. Our motives are laid bare. Who we are is laid bare. And we have to grapple with, am I actually a servant of Jesus or am I still enchained by corrupt, dark spiritual power still at work in me? It's why the church has had a history of what you'd call a deliverance ministry. Why, why has the church so focused on helping people break spiritual bondages? Because we can be saved and redeemed and yet our flesh still is like this parasitic thing working on the inside of us, causing us to, to rebel against the desires of the spirit. And so when the gospel comes to us, it lays us bare. We have to now wrestle with, who am I really? We are all victims of the false self the shadow self. See, especially in today's day and age where you can cultivate a false self, you often see this phenomenon happen with, with, as people get famous. As people get famous, they begin to develop personas. And all of a sudden, who they really are and the persona they are seems you can't even tell the difference anymore. They become that persona, though it might not be actually who they really are. And this is why we're so shocked, right? I think we have seen famous examples in this past year and a half where we see people, their persona was the loving, giddy, go-lucky person. And then all of a sudden you hear behind the scenes they were a terrible boss and they were really mean and they talk down to their workers. And we're shocked, right? Because there's a false self. There's a, there's a self we put out there for people to see and approve of, and then there's the real us. And the word of God, when, when the gospel is proclaimed to us, it says, no, 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 who are you really? You must deal with the reality of who you really are. But it doesn't stop there. Because then the gospel also calls each of us to give an account. 
It says here in verse 12, before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one whom we must render an account. That our lives communicate something. Our lives either communicate loyalty to Jesus or they communicate loyalty to some other power we've given our allegiance to. And so when we confront with the gospel, it's not enough that we're just laid bare and our false self is exposed, but we have to admit it. That's the only way healing can begin is when, when we admit that God, I'm actually, this person I think I am, I'm actually not. The person that I, I pretend to be, I'm actually not. I, I know I say all the right things and I do all the right things and I, and I show up all the right ways, but deep down I'm actually not this person. And we have to give an account. We have to confess and admit who we really are. And this is a scary thing because again, we live in an age in which we can put on a false self so easily. I, I also think it's one of the greatest tricks of, of the forces of darkness that it's, the church has become the place where that has become so popular. It's, it's here we think we have to put up the false self. Where this should be the exact opposite of the place in which we should put up the false self. This should be the place where we come bare and broken and honest about our transgressions, honest about our motivations, honest about the real deep recesses of ourselves. And we have to give an account. We have to come before, that's why we confess. That's why we, whenever we come to a church service, and I was looking at your liturgy earlier, and I was looking at you guys have a moment of confession. Why do we do that? Because we have to train ourselves to say, God, I know this is who I, may, maybe I even want to be, but this is not who I am yet. This is where I'm at. And the word of God, when it comes to barrenness, it calls us to give that account, to admit where we're at, to admit what side we actually stand on in this cosmic conflict. But then the word of God also doesn't end there. Because the call of the gospel is a call to repentance and faith. When Jesus went around announcing, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it only condemned those who didn't respond. You notice that like when, when Jesus is walking around, he's saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's some who turned away. But it wasn't because the word was meant to turn them away. The word turned them away on account that they wanted to turn away, that they did not want to participate in this new kingdom because this new kingdom meant they had to give up lordship. But for those who, repent, who turn and repent and say, Jesus, I actually can't be Lord. I am not king. I am not the creator. It's to that person that this word this word that pierces, this word that cuts, this word that gets right between spirit and flesh, that gets right to the heart of the matter, it's actually a healing word, a word of repentance and faith. And so when the gospel comes to bear on our lives, it's actually a moment where we can say, God, I may not be loyal to you. God, I may still be in some areas of my life enslaved to dark spiritual powers, but it's at this moment, as your sword pierces me, as, as this word pierces me, that I can actually say, God, make me whole. And this is the great paradox of the sword of the spirit, is that the word which wounds us is also the word that heals us. That there is grace in woundedness. There is grace and a great participation in the incarnation because by his stripes we are healed and by our own willingness to allow the word of God to confront the deepest recesses of our being that we are also healed. 
by allowing the sword to cut against the flesh, by, by allowing, the, allowing the sword to get right deep into the heart of the matter, we are at the same time paradoxically renewed and restored. You know, it's in the Greek Orthodox tradition, they often talk about God's love like a, like a fire, like a flame. And that there's this capacity to God is so loving, so good. His, his love is like a flame, which it singes, it burns, but also purifies and restores and makes new. That's what it looks like when the sword of the Spirit comes to bear, it comes to cut, it comes to get right to the heart of us so that we have to confront the false self, confess where we're at so that we actually might experience redemption. This is what it looks like to wield the sword of the Spirit in the cosmic context of the interior life. The question is, how do we participate in that? See, the thing about sanctification, it's both a divine and human work. In other words, you becoming more like Christ is the complete and utter action of the Holy Spirit. You don't make yourself more holy, you become more holy because the Spirit is acting upon you. Yet, paradoxically, again, I, I said the word paradoxically a lot today, because that is the Christian life. That is the Christian story. Death comes through life. That's a paradox. God becomes man. That's a paradox. And so, paradoxically, sanctification is completely the divine work of God, and yet you've been called to participate. It's like the image of the gardener who tills the soil and pulls up the weeds, but he can't make it rain or shine. So we too have been called to participate in our own sanctification by partnering with what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so the question is, if this is the capacity, the power of the word of God to wound us so that we might be healed, the power of the word of God in the interior life, the question is, how do we participate that in our daily lives? And so let me give you some praxis for warfare in the inner life. Number one, we have to create space for interior examination. You know, the old philosophical phrase, the life unexamined is not a life worth living. That's a, comes from ancient Greek philosophy, but it's, it has some truth to it. That we have to make it a practice of examining ourselves. Examining the deep, deepest parts of ourselves. There's parts of ourselves we often ignore. Because who wants to go that deep? Who wants to dig up trauma? Who wants to go through, not just the trauma that's been inflicted on me, but the trauma I've inflicted on others? Who wants to deal with sin? Who wants to deal with addiction? Who wants to deal with the pathos that's been in, that has been bred into me by my family upbringing? It's not a pretty thing. My wife and I, we, um, you know, pandemic came with a lot of binges, and so we, we never watched Grey's Anatomy before, so we started. And can I tell you, there's nothing more disgusting or messy than a surgical field. If you're a doctor in the room and you're a surgeon of some kind or watching online, then you know that does something for you, doesn't do anything for me. But the point is, it's messy. It's bloody, it's gory, it's scary. But interior examination, that's how we begin. If we want the sword of the spirit to pierce us, then we have to be willing to look within. We have to be willing to open up and say, God, this is who I really am. One of the hardest parts of the spiritual life is that confessing practice. And let me offer you a resource. Um, the Daily Examine by St. Ignatius of Loyola is a wonderful practice in which you daily can make it a practice of examining your interior life. Like looking at the, like when's the last time you sat down and examined the decisions you made in a day? And say, oof, 
God was in that when I, when, when I decided to help that lady down the stairs of her stroller in the subway. Man, God wasn't in it 10 minutes later when I pushed the guy to get into the train. Like these are the questions we have to ask ourselves to be aware of what's going on within. Create space for the interior examination. Number two, we have to allow God's word to confront the false self. And here's what I mean by that. Most of us don't like confrontation. And so we can get into the habit, now here I'll talk about the scriptures, where we can read the scriptures simply as a way of to do self-affirmation. I know affirmations are very popular now, and I don't think there's anything wrong with waking up in the morning saying you're, you're beautiful and you're lovely, but if the Bible's only doing that for you, you might be reading it wrong. If the Bible isn't saying, oof, that behavior right there, not okay. Oh, the way you're thinking about her or him, the forgiveness you refuse to give. If the Bible is simply affirming, affirming you, it is not changing you. And while the Bible does affirm us and the Bible does give us language for the reality of our lives and the Bible does come and encourages us, it's also a word that wounds. And it wounds in the best way because its wounds promote healing. So often the old saying goes, you have to get sicker before you get better. You have to allow the word to confront you. You have to let the word challenge your worldview. We have this modern presupposition that because we're here and now in the modern period, we, we might know a bit more than these ancient peoples who wrote these texts. And, and I have to break it to you, they were pretty smart. And they were also inspired by God. So they might have something actually to say to the human condition in the 21st century. Let it challenge you. Let it confront the false self. That's why the scriptures are filled with stories of broken humans. Because the presupposition was as they were writing it, broken humans are going to read this. And they're going to have to figure out how to wrestle with that brokenness in a way that provides restoration and redemption. And lastly, Make confession and repentance an active part of daily life. You know, again, I was, I'm, you guys are blessed to be in a church that sees value in public confession, that provides space for prayer. Avail yourselves of those resources. Make it a daily part of your own daily habit and practice. You know, there's a beautiful prayer in the Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican tradition, the prayer of confession, where it says, you know, forgive me for the things I've done and the things I've left undone. Like, let's ask those, God, what are the things that I've done today that has, that has shown my disloyalty to the kingdom? But God, also, what are the things I've left undone that show that I'm not truly living out my life in the way of Jesus? And we don't do that to shame ourselves, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not the shame game, because shame will not transform you. Beating yourself up will not transform you. But honest repentance about, God, this is just where I'm at. This is my behavior. This is who I am. That creates space for God to say, okay, you see it too. Now we can get to work on it. It's often our blindness that prevents real life change when we purposely blind ourselves to our own condition. And so I encourage you, make confession and repentance an active part of daily life. Wake up and say, God, this is who I am. Now make me who you've called me to be. We live in between Christ's death, resurrection, and his once again return. That means this middle is gonna be messy. 
That means we are not going to be the full regenerated new people of God until we see him face to face. But until that time comes, every day we can decide to say, hey God, this is who I am. I may have taken 10 steps back yesterday, but at least let me make another step forward today. That is the way of Jesus. That is the way of the gospel. It's the way of Jesus that takes a man like Peter who denies him three times and reconfirms him three times and still gives him mission and still uses and calls him and says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not not prevail against it. There's so much about confession and repentance in the scriptures because it's assuming we're gonna need it. It's assuming we're we're not gonna get it right on the first try. I think some of us depending on your, your, your conversion experience sometimes, especially for those of us who've had like radical conversions. I, I had like a slow, slow, long, drawn out conversion. You know, C.S. Lewis once said, you know, I was the most unrepentant sinner in all of England. I felt I was the most unrepentant, the most reluctant repent, repentant sinner in all of Queens. But for some of you, some of us have radical conversions and we think that's it. All my ducks are gonna fall into a row. It's not gonna happen. It's gonna take work, confession, repentance, examination, Allowing God's word to confront us. And as we do that, we wield the sword of the spirit, the word of God, the proclamation of God's rule and reign. We bring it to bear on our own lives so that we might become the people who are loyal to Jesus. Worship team, you guys want to come help me out as I begin to um, get ourselves ready to close and pray for us. But um, I'll end with this. This process is messy. It's full of stuff. And I just want to let you in on a secret to the Christian life. That's not really a secret, but it's one we often overlook. Is that this is not a process you fight and do alone. Right? You, 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 Every Christian is called to this cosmic conflict. That means every Christian is called to participate in one another's inner battles. We need each other in these moments. You know, it's funny. I was reflecting on just Paul, and I began to think of when Paul confronts Peter. Peter, you know, being an apostle, you know, the rock, he shows up. And all of a sudden, these other Jewish Christian leaders shows up, and, and Peter switches up on everybody. He, he stops eating with the Gentiles, and he begins to just eat with, the, eat with the Jews, something that flies in the face of what the council was in Acts, when we read about the first church council, something that flies in the face of all of Paul's ministry. What does Paul do? Paul confronts him. He says, Peter, you're, you're bugging out. You're wilding. This is not the gospel. This is the old way of doing things. As I reflected on that story, how much do we need people like Paul, bold enough to love us so much they're willing to tell us when the false self is showing up and who we really are? And it's messy and it hurts and sometimes it strains friendships. But if you're meant to be a Christian alone, then you wouldn't need here. And it's here where, we, where God actually works through each other. That God doesn't just flow from the platform, he doesn't just flow from the worship music or the preaching, but you are all indwelt with the spirit of God, which means you have words for each other. Words of encouragement, also words of warning. Words of correction. And it, I'll be honest, it sucks. No one likes to get called out on their stuff, but yet it's in this space where we can do that with as much love and grace as possible. And guess what, it'll be messy. I'll close with this. 
Um, Soren Kierkegaard, um, he talks about why Christian love is often misinterpreted. And he says this, he says, Christian love is misinterpreted because when the Christian says he loves you, he's saying, I am willing your greatest good. And what's, what's, your great, what's the greatest good for the Christian? That you be in right relationship with creator. But the, for most of us, we want someone to love us. We just don't want someone to affirm us. We just want someone to tell us we're doing good, we're doing great. And so when we try to love on each other, the reason it gets messy is I just want you to affirm me, but because you love me so much, you want my greatest good, you want me in right relationship with my creator, you're willing to confront me. And so let us reframe our category of what it means to be loved by one another. As we bear the sword of the spirit on ourselves and oftentimes wield it against our brothers and sisters, not to condemn, not to, not to make them feel shame, but to say, no, no, but... You're doing this, but God's scripture says this. You're thinking this way, but this is actually what God says about this situation. And while we might be offended in the beginning, let's remember what love is, is to will the greatest good for each other. What's the greatest good? That you be in relationship with your creator, that you be in right relationship, and that you'd reject the spiritual powers of darkness in this cosmic conflict and give complete and total allegiance to King Jesus. And it takes the sword of the spirit to do that in the interior life. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is challenging. The call to follow you comes at a cost. Honestly, I'll be honest about myself, Lord, a cost sometimes I don't feel willing to make. But you sent your son Jesus to pay the cost. You died so we might live. You were wounded so we might be healed. So will we allow your word, your, the proclamation of your rule and reign to work on us so that we might be redeemed and restored, holy human, loyal to the cause of the kingdom and rejecting the powers and forces of darkness would still try to work on our flesh to rebel against you. God, make this community, the type of community that so loves each other, they're willing to do the messy work of letting God's word be proclaimed to them in their daily lives. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you for the pastors and leaders. God, bless this community. Overshadow them with your goodness. Pour out your spirit upon them that even in the midst of a season of pandemic and crisis, Father God, they would find actually blessing and hope and new beginnings and all the things they've prayed for would come to pass that this place might be a beacon and eye in the storm in the midst of a troubled and broken city. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.